Well, church, we are picking back up our series in Ephesians. And um, because it's been a couple weeks uh, since we've preached Ephesians, and because it's such an important part, an important book, in the most important book, and arguably one of the most important parts in the book, uh, I wanted to read Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Uh, I've, break, I've broken this down to three different sermons. Uh, as you see, I've even shortened the, what I was going to preach on this Sunday. Uh, because these truths are so pivotal for what a church believes. Uh, this, is my four, this, is, this marks my four-year anniversary this Sunday of being a preacher at Warnell Road Baptist Church. And uh, all right, that's right. You got exactly what I was going for. <laughs> Moving on. No. <laughs> and uh, when I came here, I just was asking a lot of questions to, to brother pastors. All right. I, I, what can we do to uh, breathe more life? There's life in this church. How, how can I be faithful pastor and breathe more life in the church? <laughs> All faithful pastors said the same thing. Preach the word. Preach the word in season and out of season. They were just quoting Paul as he, in his letter to 2 Timothy. And by the grace of God, through the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, the reading of the word, through conversations about the word that is Christ crucified, the good news, our church is growing in health. And that is all credit to, the glory, uh, to God who builds his church upon his word. There's no secret God makes it very clear how he wants to build his church in health and in number. And so in our text today, we're only going to go through uh, verses 14 to 18. Uh, we see that Christ crucified is the bedrock by which the spirit creates one new man. Christ crucified is the bedrock or the foundation or the cornerstone, if you will, by which the spirit creates one new people. Or one new man. Go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 22. That can be found on page 976 of your pew Bible. Ephesians 2. 11 through 22. Therefore. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. In chapter 1, God is orchestrating all things to the praise of his glory and specifically to the praise of his glorious grace. And then chapter 2 begins by explaining that we are spiritually dead and that God, God alone, made us alive together with Christ. And this is not of your own efforts. This is not mostly Jesus and a little bit of you. Not 99% God's work and 1% yours. This is all God's doing, all by grace. And his grace is what saves us. And then we saw several weeks ago in verses 11 to 13, he's calling us to remember how we once were far off. He's speaking to Jews sometimes here and then, or he's speaking mainly to Gentiles, but then he speaks to the Gentiles and he goes to the Jewish people. He kind of goes back and forth. And so he's speaking to specifically Gentiles. That is anyone who's not Jewish. So you're a Gentile here if you, unless you are Jewish. And he's calling them to remember how they once were far off from the commonwealth of Israel. He says, uh, you had no Messiah, uh, you had no Israel, you had no promise, you had no hope, and because of this, you had no God. But in Christ Jesus, Gentiles who were far off from these truths have been brought near to the Messiah. They've been grafted into the people of God and have the promises of God and the hope of God, and then they also have God himself, which he explains that more fully in the Uh, as we'll see next week. And there's one act that initiated the breaking down of these dividing walls, and that is the cross of Christ. And that leads us to where we are today. Uh, Look at verse 13, and then we'll get into the two points of our sermon today. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that is Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And now in verses 14 to 18, he's explaining two hostilities. Two hostilities. The two hostilities are both destroyed by the cross. And we're going to break out the hostilities into uh, like this. There's the horizontal hostility, verses 14 to 15. And then the vertical hostility, verses 16 to 18. Horizontal, so hostility between people. And then vertical hostility, Hostility between mankind and God. First, we see how God destroys the horizontal hostility. Verses 14 to 15. In verses uh, 14, 18, God by the Spirit is breaking down the walls of hostility. Between Jew and between Gentile, between God and man. So let's look at verse 14 to see how exactly he does this between men. He says right off the bat there, for he himself is our peace. This he is speaking of Jesus. 
And then he moves into this contrast between uh, of what was hostility and division between ethnic groups and now what exists, this peace. In 14, again, Jesus has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Mankind likes to divide itself based on different groups. And more specifically in Ephesians 2, he's speaking of the division that man uh, often creates between ethnic groups. So think of ethnic ten- tensions that, uh, that are alive and well today between India and Pakistan, between uh, particularly in, in a lot of the 20th century, between Irish and English, between Turkish and Kurdish, between Han Chinese and Uyghur. See, ethnic tension occurs often when either the majority ethnicity or at least the ethnicity that has the most power oppresses minority ethnicities. And so in this day, in Paul's writing, culturally, the Romans are oppressing the Jewish people from an economic and a government, governmental standpoint. But many of the Jews are, in a sense, religiously oppressing or at least building big walls of division with the Gentiles. So much so that they're, called, they're calling the Gentiles the, the uncircumcision party. And you can read more about this in the book of Galatians and in portions of Acts. Clearly, Paul is writing into a scenario where there's ethnic tension. That's what the apostle is speaking into. So with that in mind, let's keep going in verse 14. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one. Those that were far off from the promises and those that were near are no longer in these two camps. There's no longer two categories between the far off and the near. There's no distinction when it, beco- when it comes to relating to God. Both Jew and Gentile all can relate to God in the same way. And this is how it's happened. Check out what Paul's doing here. This is how it's happened. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's saying the only way for these ethnic divides to be bridged was through the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility, of a hostile wall, not just a, a wall that, has, uh, that is ambiguous or apathetic, but a, a wall that says this is a marker of division. And friends, this is a mirror to all ethnic divisions. Let me say that. It's not merely Jew and Gentile. That's a mirror to all kinds of ethnic divisions. And he says that the only way the dividing wall of hostility could be broken down is if Jesus' own body is broken down. Do you see what he says there in 14? The scriptures are saying that ethnic unity between Jew and Gentile between any ethnicity, only can be bridged through the breaking down of the body of Christ. And in his broken body, Jew and Gentile, any different ethnicity can become one body. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his own flesh, in his flesh, the dividing 
wall of hostility. How do the walls get broken down? Jesus says, I will break them down by being broken down. He willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for this to occur. And he says in verse 15, the uh, important implication of Christ's death. Uh, Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in in ordinances. What does he mean? In a sense, that, that would be enough if he just stopped at 14 and he didn't add this. But he wants to clarify something for us. He wants us to understand um, several things. One of those is how to read the Old Testament. How to read the law. So he's not saying be done away with the book of Moses. That is the Torah. The first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's not saying be done away with that. Romans, let's turn to Romans 7. That will help us understand how these, how Jesus' death abolished the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Look at Romans 7, verses 4 to 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So, same thing, same theology. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. To bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law. Having died to that which held us captive. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit. And not in the old way of the written code. You see Moses talked about a day like this. Jeremiah talked about a day like this. When we would have a new heart. A heart not of stone, but a heart of flesh where our wills would be completely changed. And we would desire out of our heart, the core of our heart, to follow the will of the Lord and to obey his commandments out of a place of love. See, the law by itself does not give us the power and the ability to live, faithful, to live the faithful Christian life. What Paul is saying here is saying all the law does is show that I'm a sinner. The law is good. But in the hands of you and I, we look horrible when we try to follow the law because we can't. And so we needed someone to abolish the commandments, the, the code of the law... That was on our hearts, and because we couldn't follow it, the impending curse of death and God's wrath. And that's what Jesus did. He is the one who was able to break the curse because he actually perfectly followed the law. And the summation of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what Jesus did. I'm trying to think of a pithy little phrase usually attributed to uh, John Bunyan. 
run, John, run the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. And the second part, I can't remember, but that's the sweet part of the gospel. Um, But that's kind of what the law says. The law says, do this. And then you're like, all right, I can't do this. And then Jesus comes along and says, I will do this. And he paves the way and he becomes our sacrifice. So that's what he's getting at in Ephesians 2.15. He cleared the way that he could create a new man in himself being the bridge. And as a result, mankind has peace with one another. And then he ends verse 15 in the same way he started verse 14. Jesus himself is our peace. He had to die the hostile death that led to peace. I'm thinking of the song that we occasionally sing in our church. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it, but the lyrics go like this. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like, like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The stroke of his heavenly father pouring his wrath out on him. Church, that's how his horizontal hostility is broken down. But then Paul moves to verse 16 and 18. And before we get in there, know this, that the only way that we can understand rightly how horizontal hostility between ethnic groups, between mankind can be broken down and destroyed is because of what follows in verses 16 and 18. It's because the vertical hostility must be taken care of first. So secondly, we see our second point is destroy the destruction of vertical hostility. First, destruction of horizontal hostility. Second, the destruction of vertical hostility, verses 16 to 18. Let's read that again. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, just so we don't think there is some sort of division now with who is able to relate to God, he moves from the the breaking of hostility between mankind and moves toward the hostility between all mankind and God. So verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Both are put here in their proper place when he says that we both need reconciliation to God. Reconciliation needs to happen when something has been broken down in a relationship. Gentiles need reconciliation with God because in their unrighteousness, they have suppressed the truth and what can be known about God. And because God is good, he has anger at, the evil, at evil deeds and at evil persons. Which makes clear, the Bible makes clear, is all of us. The Jews have had the promises, the covenants, the hope, the temple, and there has been a faithful remnant. But there's also been many who are unfaithful and have not believed the truth that's been revealed to them. 
And so Paul says that both Jew and Gentile need reconciliation to God. His wrath is ready to be revealed to both. In verse 16, he makes it clear yet again that the cross of Christ is the avenue by which reconciliation between God and man occurs. God creates one body out of millions and millions and millions of people. There's one body, one new man out of millions upon millions of people throughout this world. And the only way this could happen is because the body of Christ was broken down and his blood his sinless body was broken down and his perfect blood was spilled and his sacrifice appeased God. And his blood is able to cover all who come to him. It's as if we all have the blood of Christ coursing through our veins. And this makes us intricately connected and knotted together into one universal body. That's how the hostility was killed. The killing of Jesus is what led to the killing of hostility, not just between mankind, but first and foremost between God and man. The most wicked, the most hostile act to ever occur in this world led to peace between us and God. And now we are one new man created by the one God man. You see, church, you must understand this theology if you're going to understand chapters 4, 5, and 6. If you're going to get the imperatives of Ephesians, how to live together as a church body, how to parent, how to be a good wife, how to be a good husband, you must understand this theology. Paul doesn't start with just giving the commands. He's starting with what's happened, what is most fundamentally true about you. And then in verse 17, he summarizes what he's been saying since chapter 2, verse 11. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Our ESV doesn't have this translation, but that it's, I think, most helpful to say he came and preached the gospel. Or the gospel of peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Uh, there's so much confusion about the message of Jesus and why Jesus came. But it's very clear in the Gospels, even in Mark chapter 1, he came to preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. He didn't merely come to just, you can't just take the Beatitudes, for instance, and say this is the message of Jesus. You must understand the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount in the context of Jesus' main purpose. That he came to rescue sinners. And he did that by offering his own body on the cross. And he rose three days later, conquering death. And all who come to him, all who come to him and forsake their lives and trust in him will be saved. Friends, if you are not a Christian, that is the good news. That God is good, a good, kind, heavenly father, and we've rejected his kindness, we've rejected him as a good father and as a rightful creator, we've gone our own ways, 
And the just penalty for that is death and separation from God forever in a place that the Bible calls hell. But good news is that Jesus came to save us so that we would not be sent to hell, that God's goodness would not be displayed in sending us to hell, but God's goodness, his kindness and his mercy could be displayed to us and put on us by rescuing us in his mercy and bringing us to heaven. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. So my encouragement to you, if you are not yet a Christian, turn from your sins. Trust in this Jesus who willingly gave his life for you. If you have questions about that, please come find me after the service or find the person perhaps who invited you to this church gathering. See, what Paul's doing here is no new theology. He's expanding on what the prophets of old have talked about. So even the language he's using of far off and peace and those who are near is taken from places in the scripture. And this one particularly is taken from Isaiah 57, which says, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, said the Lord, and I will heal him. So those who come to the Lord will be healed. And then Isaiah says in 57, but the wicked are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss in mire and dirt. There is no peace says my God for the wicked. And so what the apostle is doing here is that all of those who are close to the promises of God, the Jews, all those who are far off, the Gentiles, they all have one standing. And that is the cross of Christ. And so we see in in verse 18, he's starting to make this pivot to explain how this one new man functions in one new temple, the church. But as Paul does often in Ephesians, he shows the triune God is the one orchestrating this reconciliation. Look at verse 18. For through him, who is that him? It is Jesus Christ. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's saying, church, we all have one mutual sacrifice. We all have one mutual Holy Spirit as our inheritance, the guarantee of our inheritance. And we all have one heavenly Father. How? Because the wrath of God is removed from us and placed on Christ. And the Spirit comes and awakens all of us in Christ when the gospel of peace is preached to us. There's no other testimony that this, than this for the Christian. We all have the same basic stories. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We all have this in common and this places us all on common ground. So church, this is what Paul is setting up. In Christ, there's no superiority. There's no inferiority. There's no positional standing that makes any of us better than the other. We're all messed up. We've all rebelled. We are all vile, undeserving sinners, completely covered by the complete and perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He received God's wrath and we received God's mercy. That's our story. And what does this do to the oneness that he's going to get to in the following verses? It makes sense of it all. So whether you're rich or poor, whether you're charming or awkward, 
whether you struggle with this sin or that sin, no matter your ethnic background, we all stand beneath the cross and say, I am unworthy, you are worthy. And then horizontally, we look at each other and say, you're unworthy, I'm unworthy. You're saved, I'm saved. And then we grow into the spiritual house of God together. And the world looks on and says, what is that? What do those people have in common? And we say, it's not sports. It's not ethnic background. It's not our wealth. It's not where we came from. It is Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that next week. As we close, though, three applications for our church. Three applications for our church. You can write them if you're taking notes like this. Missions, Kansas City, and Warnell Road. Missions, Kansas City, Warnell Road. So what does this one new man, one body mean for global missions? At its most basic level, it means that we partner and strive to be involved with missions that resist, big word here, the homogenous unit principle. Homogenous unit principle. What does that mean? So just break down the word homogenous. Homo, same. Gen, kind or sort. Us, full of. So this is a church, this is a, a branch of the church growth movement started in the 60s and 70s. So the homogenous unit principle started by a man named Donald McGavern. And he consulted firms and research to figure out how churches could grow larger. Within these strategies of reaching out to different firms, often uh, that saw success in the business world, he developed the homogenous unit principle. And this principle says that churches grow fastest when the gospel is preached along social and ethnic lines. And this goes beyond ethnic distinctions and even can go to distinctions of age and wealth and even hobbies. So how many of you have heard of the Cowboy Church, for instance? Okay. Mainly people in the South, everyone from the North is like, what? Cowboy Church. Or I've heard of, of a church for surfers in California when I lived in San Diego for a summer. See, the problem in light of this one new man theology that we just went through in Ephesians 2 is that the unifying factor of these churches is not Jesus. It's partially Jesus and your hobby. If it is Jesus, then they're excluding different people. See how that goes? So you can say, okay, we are a church uh, that, that loves... Uh, we want to reach all those who went to KU. We love the Jayhawks. But we'll accept other people. So if that's your mentality, what you're saying, if you're a wildcat, if you're a tiger, <laughs> those are the mascots for Mizzou and for uh, K-State, um, the Jayhawks are saying, oh, you're welcome to come join us. But we, our, our commonality is around Jesus and the Jayhawks. And so what you're doing is you're putting the Mizzou Tiger fans and the K-State Wildcat fans in this position to say, I'm always going to feel like an outsider here because they're unifying around Jesus and KU basketball tradition. 
and even the football tradition. It's the odd thing to do. But people do odd things when they get away from the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. So when it comes to global missions, rather than separate along ethnic lines, we should strive to build churches and send out missionaries who are zealous to see people with vastly different life experiences and ethnic backgrounds covenant together in a local church. Friends, far from slowing down the glory of Christ among the nations... When Pakistani people and Indian people, when people from Muslim backgrounds and people from Hindu backgrounds, when Turks and Kurds and Zazas, when Han Chinese and Uyghurs, when they come together in one church, that glorifies Jesus. That maximizes his glory. That's the goal, I said, if you remember. Now, the road to get there can be bumpy and can be confusing And need a lot of wisdom from the Holy Spirit and other counselors. And this isn't to say that people shouldn't divide based on language. If you've ever been to a uh, a, a worship service in a different language, it's not very edifying, is it? You don't know what they're saying. They could be saying heresy and clapping and singing. You have no idea. So it's okay to divide in friendly ways along Language And that's in missions, that's a totally appropriate thing to do. But when there is a common language, certainly there in, in Ephesus, there were different languages spoken. But when there's a common language, the goal should be to unite people uh, based on Jesus Christ. And this often looks like people laying down part of their own culture. All right, that's mission. Secondly, Kansas City. There's so much I could say here. I'm going to say one thing for our church. This is application for our church. Church, acknowledge the racist past of your city. That's all I'm going to say about this. Acknowledge the racist past of your city. See clearly the history of racism in Kansas City. In our very neighborhood, in Brookside, they had neighborhood covenants. Where you couldn't sell your house. To anyone who was black, you couldn't sell your house to anyone who was Jewish, and you couldn't sell your house to anyone who was Italian. That has reverberating effects. When those neighborhood covenants are done away with, it doesn't go away in a night or a year or a decade. So all this should do is breed compassion in us and understanding. The solution from a government standpoint, we can actually covenant together as a church and differ on the solution from a statehood standpoint. I hope that you believe that church, that we can have differing opinions on how that kind of restoration can occur. But from a spiritual standpoint, we need to adamantly and fervently and wholeheartedly trust that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ which can most heal all those wounds and those resounding, rippling effects of racism. If you need more convincing of this, just next time you're down Highway 71, ask yourself, why did they decide to build Highway 71 down this way and not Ward Parkway? They wanted a quicker way to get to downtown or through downtown. And the powers that be said, of course, you're not going to mess up Ward Parkway. 
Let's go to this other area where we have, there's less, uh, there's less, there will be less pushback and people who have less power will not raise as much of a fuss. But friends, the solution is preaching the gospel. That solution. I just want our church to be compassionate and understanding and then offer the good news of the gospel. It was so obvious last summer how many different groups in Kansas City were trying to figure out solutions to problems. And I'd say in some ways even concocting problems that might not even be problems. Friends, I don't know all the answers to that. And I'm so thankful that you as a church have not placed upon me the expectation to be a social a sociolo- sociology expert. I am not. I'm a preacher of the gospel. And that is what you've called me to do. And that is by the grace of God, what you've expected from me. And so I just want to say, thank you, church. I have friends throughout the country who have been just lambasted for not speaking about this in the right way. Churches had divided because, you know, someone said something compassionate about racism and now they are labeled as too woke. And so now there's a group that wants them out of their church Or I've had friends who haven't spoken about it at all because they don't know what to do. And people have left their church. I'm just so thankful that Warnell Road is a church that understands my calling is to preach the gospel. And that is what I'm going to continue to do. And all I'm saying, dear church, is let's have compassion and understanding about the resounding or reverberating or continual effects of the clear racist past of Kansas City. Thirdly, Warnell Road. Strive to get to know people that are different from you. If you're in college, get to know and develop friendships with those who are in their 40s. If you're in your 30s, spend time with senior citizens in our church. We're not the most ethnically diverse church, but find people with different backgrounds. It's amazing how um, Andrew Evans and I are both grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. And it's amazing. Sometimes in social settings, I can want to gravitate to talking to him about things that we know about Raleigh. And that's just a small example of how we all do this, whether we're from different states or whether we have different ethnic backgrounds. Just be aware of that. Doesn't mean you don't do that. Really room for that. But also understand that you don't want to un, um, unhelpfully ostracize other people. And one larger application for us, church, is that there's no room for hostility. There is no room for hostility between us. There's no room for grudges, for slights, for gossip, for slander. When we all stand beneath the cross of Christ, we realize that you're going to be offended by other Christians in this church. In fact, the more you lean into this church, the more you can know us, the more likely you are going to be sinned against. So lean into the cross. So that you can overlook offenses, forgive people, whether it's perceived offenses or real offenses. And where you can offer grace. Remember what our Lord says. He who has been forgiven much, but he who has been forgiven little will forgive little. I'm totally butchering that. I'm sorry. I had it in my sermon yesterday during the wedding and I can't even bring it up. You have been forgiven much by Jesus and therefore you can forgive others in this church freely and bountifully. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Warner Road Baptist Church. Let us not take that for granted. That was our founding 100 years ago in 1921. And Lord, it seems that the gospel was assumed. And year after year, the church seemed to have drifted from Christian orthodoxy. We pray that we would not drift. Help us continually sing songs loudly that Christ is our only hope in life and death. That we continue on in this world, not just in our salvation, but in our sanctification, saying, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Lord, make that our foundation. Help us to, in a sense, gossip about the gospel to one another and the good ways that we see you working in our church. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.